summer adventure, a four-month journey through uh, the book of Psalms, and that does not mean we're going to cover every psalm. Uh, There will be selected psalms. We're trying to pick uh, some from each style and genre of the psalms, Um, and as we get into this, what we call our Summer in the Psalms series, I wanted to begin with just a few helpful thoughts in relation to what we call the book of Psalms. What is it? Uh, Where did it come from? How did we get it in our Bible? Well, the Psalms, this particular collection of Psalms or songs is Israel's ancient songbook. Uh, That is what it is. They would uh, sing these songs, recite these songs as they were making their way to festivals or participating in festivals in their weekly gatherings in their homes. Uh, This is what they would use uh, in a sense to worship and to convey truth back and forth to one another. And the Psalms is a a collection uh, of arranged books. There's five books that make up what we know as the book of Psalms. You've probably seen those headings uh, somewhere around, I think, chapter 40. Book one ends and book two begins. And you may wonder what that is. Uh, Well, those are the five books. And each of them has a unique theme. Uh, These were edited and and put together after the Babylonian exile. They came back and these books were formulated. And and each of these five books that make up the whole of the book of Psalms ends with a doxology. In other words, a declaration of the glory of God. It's very interesting when you can begin to see the organization of these things. And some say uh, that it is made to mirror the, the Old Testament Pentateuch the books of the law, that these five books of the Psalms are meant to mirror those five books uh, that make up the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, Here's one quote by Ross on that. He says, in general, books one and two lay out the foundation of God's program as it relates to the Davidic monarchy. Book three reflects on the failure of that monarchy and was shaped with the exile in mind. And then books four and five of the books of Psalms present the restoration and the hope for the future with the Lord as King. In the New Testament, uh, the authors of the New Testament quote the book of Psalms more than any other uh, book from the Old Testament. And particularly, the psalm we're going to look at together today is quoted more than any other psalm in the pages of the New Testament. And the psalms provide us with rich theology give us a a clearer understanding of the nature of our God. I want to read to you what Trimper Longman writes. He says, The Psalms give us theology written in intimate relationship with God, in close touch with life. In other words, they're sincere, they're they're real, they're raw. There's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life of all grief, sorrow, fear, doubt, hope, cares, perplexities. In short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. In other words, we learn not only about God as we read the Psalms, we learn about ourselves as well. And Longman concludes, for many, that can be a frightening prospect. 
And because the Psalms are Hebrew poetry, and because they are, they are so rich with figurative language, I just want to encourage you, um, drink slowly as we read through these together. And, and we are limited in our time on these Sundays. We're going to get the Psalms to you to know what you're going to be studying the next week. My, my challenge to you is read the Psalm beforehand. Consider it beforehand. Come ready to, to receive it. And then afterwards, take notes and, and read those notes and consider those things. And actually, as we move through the summer months, our, our PBS, our, our prayer Bible studies on Wednesday nights, we're going to focus on the psalm that we just studied. And so this Wednesday night, I invite you to come out 6.30. We're going to spend some additional time uh, digging into, reflecting on Psalm number two, because that's what we're looking at today. Psalm number two. And you may wonder, why two? <laughs> why, not, why not one? Well, five years ago, nearly to the day, this came up on my Facebook feed yesterday, uh, we started our first Summer in the Psalms series. We did a series through Psalms five years ago, and we covered Psalm 1 in that particular series, and so I did not want to duplicate that. But Psalm 1 and 2 both formulate the doorway into the book of Psalms. They're where they are for a purpose. Psalm 1 introduces us to the importance of, of focusing in and meditating on the law of the Lord. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of ungodly, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Psalm 2 comes in introducing us to the Davidic monarchy introducing us to the King David and uh, what will follow in relation to all that will be unfolded in the book of Psalms regarding the kingdom of Israel, uh, Zion, the city of Jerusalem. And so these help us to understand those things. But what's interesting to me, particularly about Psalm 2, is, is that it was written by David and it was written for David. It's about him being anointed king. It's about his coronation to be the king of Israel. We'll see that as we work through this. However, it wasn't put in the forefront of the book of Psalms until after the Babylonian captivity when the kingly line of David was seemingly gone. There was no king in Israel when they decided to put Psalm 2 as the doorway into the book of Psalms. We'll see why that will be here in just a moment. But for now, would you join me as I read Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling 
Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Father, we now ask for that gracious blessing as we consider the content of Psalm 2. May it encourage us, may it challenge us, rebuke us, lead us to repentance. Thank you for the truth of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The psalm begins with a rhetorical question. Why do the nations rage? The heathen rage, the people plot in vain. And the question is one of astonishment. It's one uh, of, of amazement with a dash of indignation. Uh, how, how dumb, how stupid do they have to be to think that they could rage against the Lord Yahweh to plot against Him? The word rage here can be used uh, to describe the raging of the sea, the, the roar of a crowd. Uh, really what he's dealing with here contextually is, is the raging of the tumultuous meeting of rebels who have gathered together to plot against the Lord. The same word that's used here is the same word that's used in the book of Daniel. Uh, when Daniel was in a position of leadership and the other leaders became jealous of Daniel and they decided they were going to do something about it, they came together to plot against Daniel to try to find fault with Daniel, and all they could find against him was that he prayed a lot. And they made up some rules and ended up getting him thrown into the lion's den. They came together to plot against him, born of jealousy, and that's exactly what's happening here. The nations are driven by jealousy, and they are rebelling against Yahweh. The nations, the heathens, or the peoples is most often used as a reference in the Psalms and particularly in the Old Testament to the, the nations surrounding Israel, the Moabites, the Edomites, the, the Philistines, uh, Egypt. And here the psalmist says their planning and their plotting is in vain because their plans will fail. Verse 2 confirms uh, the collaboration of the kings and the rulers, but it reveals this very important find for us. It says, against the Lord, again, all capitals, so we're using the name Yahweh, the personal name of God. They are rebelling against the Lord and against who? His anointed. His anointed. They plot against Yahweh and against Yahweh's anointed. You see, to rebel against Yahweh is to rebel against His anointed, and to rebel against His anointed is to rebel against him. But why does the psalmist choose this word? He references the king as the anointed. It's a, it's a passive adjective that refers to David, and I bring that up because it wasn't David who anointed himself. He's passive in this. God is saying, I am the one who has put David into power. Now, that word that's used here, this, this, this word that we look at as anointed, that word as, as it is moved from Hebrew into the English language is the word Messiah. And, and if we were to look at the Greek counterpart to that that we find in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it's Christos or Christ. This is the title that's given to David in Psalm 2. But in this original context, the reference here is to the anointed king, King David. In other words, you mess with David, you're messing with the one who put David in power. 
You're messing with Yahweh. And in verse 3, the rebelling kings and the nations, they speak. Notice that it's in quotations. They say, let us burst their bonds apart. We'll cast away their cords from us. See, the nations are tired of being controlled by King David. They're tired of Israel telling them what to do. In their own words, they're plotting to free themselves from the bonds and the cords of Israel and ultimately the bonds and the cords of Yahweh, the king of the universe. And so in this first section, one through three, the rebelling nations speak. In this next section, verse four, five, and six, Yahweh responds. And for my alliteration purposes, you may notice I put the Lord roars. And really, he roars with, with laughter, as it says in verse four. Watching and listening from their throne in heaven, which, which, which I love this because he says, I'm, I'm, I'm on my throne in heaven. This is a jab at them. His throne, his kingdom is in heaven. Theirs is maybe 200 square miles with a few thousand people. And he wants them to understand who they're dealing with in this context. And he uses a different word here. He doesn't use the word capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. He uses the word Lord in the sense of, of the sovereign one, the one who is in control of all things. And he laughs at them. Not in a hysterical, that was a hysterical joke kind of way. He laughs in disgust. He mocks them. Remember when Elijah was on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal, they have their, their sacrifice ready and they're praying that Baal would bring down fire to consume their sacrifice and, and they're spending the day doing this and, and they're cutting themselves and they're pleading and what does Elijah do? He mocks them. <laughs> He says, maybe, maybe Baal's on vacation. Maybe he's sleeping. You need to yell louder to wake him up. Maybe he's relieving himself. He's mocking them in the ridiculousness of what they're trying to accomplish. And that's what Yahweh does with them. God, who is seated on the throne in heaven, mocks the ridiculousness of humans who think they can overwhelm him and thwart his plans. It will not happen. And so he speaks to them and he speaks words of wrath and he speaks words of anger and that leads to their terror. There, there's some arrangement here in the Hebrew uh, where, where the words are placed together and you have this, I believe in your bulletin, that, that it says he speaks and then the next word in Hebrew is wrath and next word right next to it is anger and then resulting in their terror. And the, the reason the author does that is because he wants the emphasis on the, the wrath and the anger of God towards the rebellion. And so what does he say? Notice verse six, here's his response. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now I also have to point out this, this cool parallelism that you find in, in the psalm because verse one and two describe the rebellion of the kings and verse three, what? The kings speak. Verse Four and five describe Yahweh's response and what happens in verse six. Yahweh speaks. So you have two verses that describe, then a, then a quotation, two verses that describe, then a direct quotation. Uh, just beautiful the way that these things are constructed together. But here's what he says. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There's emphasis here on the as for me or I myself. There's an there's a added in personal pronoun before the verb here to emphasize that it is me, Yahweh. I am the one who is doing this. 
David does not rise to power on his own. I am the one who is accomplishing this. And the point may seem a bit anticlimactic because he says, I'm the one who has established David to be king. In essence, Yahweh roars back at them, kings and rulers, if you desire to remove David from the throne, then you are desiring to remove me from my heavenly eternal throne. And that will not go well for you kings and rulers of the earth. In the third section, the Lord rises. We hear directly from King David. The psalmist himself speaks. He testifies regarding his own right to rule, a right that he recognizes does not come from him, but rather it comes from the Lord who raised him up, the Lord who so many years before sent Samuel to anoint him in his village in Bethlehem, the Lord who, who came to him with the promise that his kingdom, David, your kingdom will last forever. It will have no end. And so using figurative language, David describes the king's relationship to Yahweh as that of a son to a father. Yahweh says to David, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. One of the words that often gets confused and can get misused is the word begotten that we find here in verse 7. Used to describe here the nature of the relationship between David and Yahweh. Uh, some translations read, I've become your father, but the, the broader sense of this particular word is, is to reproduce, to bear a son. We, we see this in all the genealogies. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob. There's a reproductive sense to this. And so in what way is David begotten by Yahweh? There are plenty of examples from, from ancient religions and pagan religions, even during this particular time in, in ancient history, uh, where the divinity, the gods would come to the earth and they would mingle with humanity and they would create these, in a sense, half-breeds of people that were part divine and part human. But the Jews would recognize immediately that the idea of Yahweh literally begetting a son is blasphemy. This is why it was such a struggle for, for the Jews during Jesus' day to hear that language and, and recognize to think, God can't begat a son. That's not the way it works. What this means is verse 7 has to be taken figuratively, not literally. One key to, to recognizing its figurative language is it says, today I have begotten you. It's in a sense this, it's David is being adopted David is being selected to be in this position with the Father. He's being drawn into relationship with the Father. We'll come back to that in, in just a moment as we will apply that to recognize who Christ is. The point is made clear in Hebrews. And so I know that's somewhat of the weeds, and like I said, we're going to deal with that in a moment. But in the rest of the verses, 8 and 9, apart from some incredible parallelism, figures of speech. The promise is straightforward. Yahweh says he's given dominion to Israel, and particularly he's given dominion to Israel's kings. The nations can rage against David all they want, but as long as God's anointed, as long as Yahweh stands behind him, those nations will miserably fail in any attempt they make uh, to thwart the kingdom of Israel. In fact, he uses the language, they will be smashed into pieces like pottery. Pretty powerful. 
And so moving to the final section, the tone changes. Talking about verse 10. David uses the phrase here, now, therefore, marking something significant. It's a transition, more personal tone. Here, what happens is David invites the kings to heed the warning of Yahweh. He invites them to listen to what Yahweh has to say. Here, here the, the rest of the story will be written by how the kings and the rulers respond to the instruction that is given. And so, what is the instruction that's given? He calls on those rulers to be wise. He calls on those rulers to heed the warning, to receive the instruction. And again, here's the emphasis is found on the, the wisdom and the warning. Uh, what will be your response on the external kings, rulers? But what will be your response? Will you respond with wisdom? Will you heed the warning that is to come? What's the instruction? Serve the Lord. David invites the neighboring kings and rulers to serve Yahweh. Serve him with fear. Rejoice with trembling. This, this is an invitation. This is an altar call. This is an opportunity to respond by changing their loyalties from their God's little g to the one true God. To leave their statues of Baal behind. To stop going to the Sacrifice to Moloch and Ashtoreth and instead serve Yahweh. Offer a shout of rejoicing to Yahweh. The outward sign of these, these rulers and kings, if they would follow the instruction that's given, is found in this strange phrase. Kiss the son. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. His wrath is quickly kindled. You see... Conquered and submissive kings would often bow before their victor and offer a kiss sometimes to the feet, sometimes to a ring to recognize and symbolize their subjection. I've actually got a, a picture that I'll have you show, Amos, of uh, what this looks like on some ancient form. This is from, from an Elamite, and notice that he is bowing before the victor kissing his feet. This is the invitation that David offers those kings. Kiss the son, bow before the Lord's anointed. What I find amazing about this last section is in grace and in mercy, Yahweh is inviting the rebelling kings and rulers to come serve. He doesn't have to. He could drop the hammer however he wants to drop the hammer, but he is inviting them to come. Stop rebelling against me. Start rejoicing in me. And that leads to the final word of promise that we find in the psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Even you, king of the Edenites, even you, leader of the Amalekites, you take refuge in Yahweh, you'll find blessing. The invitation is open to these rebelling kings and kingdoms. By the way, that promise still stands today. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So what do we take away from Psalm 2? First thing I want to point out is this, that the Lord is sovereign. 
the Lord is sovereign. The theology the psalm portrays the Lord as the sovereign king uh, of the universe. He reigns from heaven. It's his prerogative to control nations, to establish borders, to set up kings, to remove kings. It's in his prerogative to do all of those things. Uh, It was he who puts the king on the throne. And no matter how well planned, no matter how powerful the opposition, it was doomed to fail if it was against God. Because he is the sovereign one. So as nations rise and fall around us, including our own, potentially. The Lord is still sovereign. Nothing will thwart his plan. We can rest assured in those moments that he has not lost control. Earlier we were singing the song speaking about how he is seated on the throne. And I've always appreciated the comment that I've, I've heard in a couple of different contexts, but you know, he is seated on his throne. Our God is not standing up, wrenching his fist and pacing back and forth. Oh no, what's happening down there on the earth as if things are out of his control. He is seated on the throne because it's under control. No matter how crazy or chaotic it may seem for you, for, for me, he is still in control. Even when it rains, as it has been raining, but it's the day you forgot your umbrella. He's still in control, isn't he? You can rest assured that he has not lost control. With sickness enters your life or your family's life and, and drastically changes your plans, he's still in control. My dad just retired. He's worked his whole life to this particular point. And nine months before retirement, he's diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. That's quite the change in plans. Many of you have experienced similar. God's still in control. It doesn't shake him. It doesn't worry him. When others rise against you, when Satan pushes against you, when enemies come and thwart your plans, you can rest assured that they have not thwarted God's plan. Even if there's a wing shortage, it's still in his control. Second point I want us to see is this the Lord has established his kingdom. You guys, don't go out and buy me wings, please, okay? Some of you, I know you're right now, get pastor some wings. Don't go slaughter chickens that you had, your neighbor has in their yard, none of that. It's not worth it. The Lord has established his kingdom. And this point is so good. I mentioned earlier that when when the Israelites edited the book of Psalms, they placed Psalm 2 in the introductory, the preeminent spot. And they did so even though they didn't have a king at that time. They're, They're writing about how God says, don't mess with my anointed. I'll protect. We'll shatter the pots. And they just came out of 70 years of captivity. And they come back. I would have been like, let's put Psalm 2 maybe right in the middle. Let's bury it under all the other paperwork. But no, they, they put it right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. So, 
Why would they do that? Because they trusted the covenant faithfulness of God that he would rise and raise up another king in the line of David. See, the Psalms can be a bit of a mess to interpret. This particular can be because the layers kind of pile on top of each other. Who's the anointed? Who's this son? Well, the original audience, it was David. David is speaking of himself. And then, you know what? As, as David died and Solomon moved into power, it was applied to Solomon. He was in the line of David and he was the king. And this is no doubt a psalm that would be quoted at any coronation of any of the kings that would follow in line of Judah, Josiah, Hezekiah, any of those that would come in time. But I want you to check this out with me. Turn to Acts chapter 4, if you would. Acts chapter 4. We're going to go a couple of different places here in the New Testament. Acts 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 23. When they were released... Speaking of Peter and John who had been arrested for talking about Jesus again. They went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said. And when they heard it, they, they lifted their voices together, the whole of the church, and they said, here's what they prayed, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and guess what they quote, Psalm 2. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to us, your servants, to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and the signs and wonders performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. In this text, Peter recognizes that Psalm 2 is about Jesus. Psalm 2 is the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the one the rulers of the world tried to crush. They tried to remove the cornerstone, but the cornerstone in turn crushed them. And, and there's a point that Peter makes in here. He likens the Jewish religious leaders to those nations who are raging against God's plan. That's a pretty bold statement to make. The point is Jesus is the final and the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2. There will be no other king to be anointed. He is the anointed one. He is the chosen king. He is the one who will crush the rulers like clay pots. He is the son to whom we must all kiss. We must surrender ourselves to. Look at one other text with me here. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. 
Hebrews 1. See, the New Testament speaks of Jesus as being the begotten, the only begotten of the Father. That too is figurative. We, we do not believe, we do not teach that, that God the Father somehow produced and created Jesus. He is not some reproductive part of who the Father is. It's a defining marker to help us understand the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son between these parts of the Godhead. John 1 makes it abundantly clear that He is fully God as the Father is fully God. He is not begotten of any sense. Check out Hebrews 1. Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, speaking of Jesus the Christ, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Notice the question in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say this? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. What does the author of Hebrews do? He applies Psalm 2 to Jesus. He is the ultimate fulfillment of these things. This is why in Philippians 2, when Paul is writing uh, to the church, he's speaking of their need to humble themselves. And he says, you need to humble yourself as Jesus humbled himself, even to the point of death on a cross. And then it says after that, therefore, because of Jesus' humility, his willingness to become the sacrifice, therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess because he is the anointed one. He is the king of kings. And despite that, still the nations rage. Still the world rebels against the Lord and his Messiah, Jesus. Romans 1 describes in vivid detail humanity's rejection, the rebellion against Yahweh. Suppress the truth. I don't, I don't want to hear that. I don't want anything to do with that. We worship the, the creation more than the creator. We, we are given to uncontrolled passions, driven by jealousy. We rebel against the king. I, I don't want you to rule me. I want to rule me. That's the heart of man. We're the nations who rebel and plot against the bonds and the cords of the Lord. This selfish heart posture results in people who, who buck against those bonds by rejecting his teaching. 
I, I don't want anybody to tell me I can't murder somebody. I'll do what I want to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me that I can't materialistically covet what my neighbor has. I'll want what I want. Nobody can tell me who I can and can't marry. Nobody can tell me what gender I am. We push back against the Lord. Just finished a biography on Thomas Jefferson, and I've read this anecdote about his life and other sources, but it was neat to read it from a biographer that Jefferson created his own Bible. Jefferson took the Bible that was there and he had a, a knife and he cut out the verses he liked and put them in his own Bible and called it the Jefferson Bible. Because there was a lot of things about the Bible that he didn't agree with and he didn't like. And so he created his own in much of that, much of his comments revolve around Jesus, and he, he really liked the teaching of Jesus. And there's a lot of people in our present culture that really like the teaching of Jesus. There's a lot of people around the world, whether they're in other religions, they like the teaching of Jesus, but they don't like the kingship of Jesus. We rebel against the Lord we see the rebellion against the Lord as our brothers and sisters across the globe are imprisoned, pulled out of their homes, killed. I just read again this week of, of the persecution in Iran, yet despite the persecution that's coming on the Christians in Iran, there's still a great revival that God is doing amongst the Iranian people. Countries like China, right now, Myanmar is in a disastrous mess. And I've gotten word in, in, from various circles that Christians are being heavily persecuted amidst this civil rebellion and unrest that's happening. They're rebelling against the Lord's anointed, therefore they're rebelling against the Lord. Rebelling against the Lord by even denying His existence claiming there's no creator, even, even when most admit that there's some miracle that has to happen at the end of this thing or the beginning of this thing, whatever theory, trail they move down. Yet they don't want a creator. They don't want an authority. They don't want someone to tell them what to do. They don't want a king. There are dozens of other points that could be made. I, I hope these capture well our present culture and how we see the world rebelling against Yahweh. But the truth is we don't often want a king either. We who possess the Holy Spirit, we buck against him every day. I don't want someone telling me what to do. We're, we're not immune to the temptation to reject the rightful king. When I give in to worry and I don't trust him, I'm rebelling against him. I'm saying, I don't trust you enough, so I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to try to figure out my own plan, my own way of escape. When I don't get what I want and, and so I get angry, uh, maybe with God, maybe with another person who's created in the image of God and I, I yell at them or I demean them because they didn't give me what I wanted, I'm rebelling against 
the kingship of Jesus. I'm pushing back. Thankfully, he is faithful and just to forgive us. But as we watch and are directly affected by the world's rejection of our king, and truly their king, they will bow. We don't need to fear. I see so much fear out of followers of Jesus. We're afraid of what's going on around us. We're afraid of of losing control. We fear the rebellion and the rejection. Now what are we to do? Find refuge in Him. Blessed are those who find their refuge in Him. And we wait for the return of the King. Psalm 2 was written 3,000 years ago. And despite the rise and the fall of many kings and kingdoms, you just think through the history of 3,000 years. Names like Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Napoleon. And in none of those kingdoms rising and falling did it ever thwart the plan of Yahweh. His plan still persists. And what I love about the connections we find. Psalm 2, is it about David? No. What we know now is ultimately it was about Jesus. The king is coming. The king has been anointed. The plan has not been thwarted. Jesus will return to vindicate his people. Jesus will return to make all things new again. You know, John writes of this in Revelation 19 and verse 11. I saw the heaven open and behold there was a white horse and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself and he's clothed in a robe that's dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, We're following him on a white horse and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw the angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who was in his presence. And he had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the throne and all the birds were gorged 
with their flesh. Who is your king? Are you today finding refuge in Jesus, the rightfully anointed one? Are you surrendered? Have you, as the text says, kissed the son and recognized his rightful place on the throne? Are you serving and rejoicing in him? And then I love, again, the invitation. Are you inviting others to serve the Lord? Are you like David does in the psalm, inviting others to find refuge in him? Talking about your own family, I'm talking about your own friends, your coworkers, the people who live on your street. Would you bow with me this morning? I want to give you a moment to pray, a moment of response. Maybe it's a moment of surrender for you. You've been rebelling, you've been bucking against the, the true king, the rightful king. Maybe it's a moment of rejoicing in, in the fulfillment of this psalm in the life of Jesus. Maybe it's a prayer of hope that you need to pray and recognizing that the king will return. The king will stop the rebellion. He will come in that anger and wrath. Whatever the prayer you need to pray, I want to give you opportunity to pray it at this time. And I'm going to pray for us in just a moment to close us. Father, this morning we have gathered together. And as we've already done in song and prayer, we've confessed with our mouth that Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And so God, help us to not forget that. It's easy to forget that. It's easy to see this world in chaos around us. Our own lives get turned around. Change comes and, and things seem so out of control. And we're given to fear and worry and hopelessness. But there's a story that you've been writing from before creation, and we, we capture one of those early chapters in Psalm 2. To see that you have a plan. The king is on the throne. And that your plan will not be thwarted. We can't disrupt it. Great kingdoms cannot disrupt it. God, help us to take that truth with us this week. Help us to share that truth with others who are overwhelmed by the, the brokenness and the fallenness and the chaos of this world. Help us to point them to find refuge in the Lord and in His anointed Jesus.
and it is in his name we pray today. Amen.